Justice Poston sits on the Florida Supreme Court, where he has served since 2008, including a two-year term as Chief Justice from 2012 to 2014. Governor Jeb Bush appointed him to the First District Court of Appeal, and he served on that court from 2001 until his appointment to the Florida Supreme Court. Justice Poston was engaged in the private practice of law in Tallahassee from 1987 to 2000 with a Martindale Hubble AV rating and a bar register preeminent attorney designation. His Juris Doctor and Bachelor of Science degrees are from Florida State University. Before obtaining a law degree, he worked in Tampa as a certified public accountant from 1977 to 1984 with the international accounting firm Deloitte, Haskins, and Sells, and he has maintained his certification in the field since then. Justice Poston has been an adjunct law professor at Florida State University since 2003, teaching Florida constitutional law, insurance law, and alternative dispute resolution, and he has spoken around the state to various Federalist Society chapters. Now it's my uh, honor to turn things over to Justice Poston so he can introduce the rest of our panelists. Thank you. This week, uh, I watched uh, with you and the rest of the world when President Trump nominated Judge Gorsuch to the United States Supreme Court. And there, uh, I heard his remarks accepting the nomination, and he described so eloquently Justice Scalia as being lion of the law. So how fitting that today, in our tribute and to the legacy and life of Justice Scalia that we discuss the law. And we're gonna do that with the panelist members uh, that I'll introduce sequentially as they come up to give a 10 minute um, um, summary of different areas of the law involving separation of powers, originalism, statutory interpretation and textualism, and substantive due process and political process. That will last uh, for the first part of the uh, program, and then we'll have a 20 minutes discussion among the panelist members, and then leave uh, the balance of the time, hopefully around 20 to 30 minutes for questions and answers from the audience. Our first speaker for the panel is Dr. John Baker. Dr. Baker is a visiting professor at Georgetown Law School and in, in Peking University School of Transnational Law. He is Professor Emeritus of Law at Louisiana State University Law School. He has been a visiting professor at the University of Lyon III in France from 1999 to 2011, and at the Universidad de Los Andes, Chile, where he was a Fulbright specialist in 2012. He has lectured at universities and research institutes in many countries, including the Philippines, where he was a Fulbright fellow in 2006. Professor Baker taught a course on separation of powers with Justice Scalia for many years with the Federalist Society, and he now lives in Amelia Island. Dr. Baker. Separation of powers was Justice Scalia's most favorite topic. He taught the course at least once every summer. We would teach it for the Federalist Society every other summer. And when people would ask him about teaching federalism, he wouldn't consider teaching it. This is what he cared most about. So I want to talk about three things. First of all, I'm going to go over some of the typical things he would say to audiences that would come in to hear him or when he would go out to speak. 
whether it was to a lay audience, to an audience of lawyers or law students, he pretty much had a set kind of theme that he wanted to go through, which really framed his understanding for separation of powers. The second is that I want to talk just briefly about the importance of separation of powers. And third, I'm going to go through uh, three of the cases that we used to teach on separation of powers <coughs> and um, you know some of the significance and the relationship to other things that he was concerned about. In Justice Scalia's talks, which were always funny, uh, he would start off usually by saying, most Americans believe the most important thing about our Constitution is the Bill of Rights. And then he would say, if you believe that, you're crazy. And that would get people's attention. And he would go on to explain to them that every tin horn dictator in the world has a Bill of Rights. It's the first thing they do. But that without separation of powers, a Bill of Rights means nothing. And so he would then go on to explain that a Constitution means a structure. Just like older people would say they took a constitutional, maintaining the bone structure. Constitution is the formation. These are ideas that are difficult to get across because as he would sometimes say, it's much easier to get a group following you if you are proclaiming freedom of speech or die than it is to say bicameralism or fight. I mean, it just doesn't have the same kind of resonance to it. He would also say that he would try to get the Bill of Rights cases right, but that he would fall on his sword for the structural cases. So separation of powers and what he understood about it was largely taken from the Federalist. And I asked him one year, I said, well, when did you start reading the Federalist? Well, he said, when I was head of the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department, most of the issues we had to deal with and advise the president on had no legal precedent. Therefore, we had to look to the source. And the source is understood for many years, but then lost for many years, really is the Federalist. So for instance, the term separation of powers does not appear in the Constitution, deliberately. But the Federalist explains at great length the meaning of separation of powers and how it is actually divided up in the text. And Justice Scalia would go through each of the articles and ask you, what is the first sentence? What does it say? And that's how it allocates power. He wouldn't talk about federalism too much because, as he said, the 17th Amendment basically killed it. But he went and using separation of powers could protect federalism. And many people in the states would think the separation of powers has little to do with them. But without separation of powers at the federal level, the states are going to lose out. So the criminal cases from the 1990s, the Lopez and the Morrison cases, they're really separation of powers cases, even though they're reported as federalism cases or, quote, states' rights cases, a bad term. And it was this understanding that separation of powers is, is so important that he would usually tell audiences of lawyers, law students, and laymen, you must read The Federalist, not just Federalist 78, the whole of The Federalist. So I want to go on briefly, as I said, to the second point on the importance of separation of powers. I don't know if any of you are old enough to have had Gunther's Con Law book in law school. Anybody? 
a couple of people. Okay, you date yourself like I do. Anyway, it w once Gunther wrote that before U.S. versus Nixon, the law professors were teaching that separation of powers didn't exist anymore. Why? Because the Supreme Court hadn't decided the case on it. Well, once the court decided the case on it, they decided it was now relevant again. The import of separation of powers is that it's very difficult to litigate. One, therefore you're not likely to get cases on it. Two, the framers never intended this stuff to be litigated much on separation of powers. It's the battle between mainly the two political branches. So separation of powers also was the thing that the framers least disagreed about. They disagreed more about federalism and that's where most of the litigation between the state and the federal governments have been. So let's get into some of the cases then. And we'll talk about three cases. Probably his most famous opinion was one of his earliest ones, his dissent in Morrison v. Olson. Morrison v. Olson was decided in 1988, and he was the lone dissenter. And what was ironic about the case is that during the Reagan administration, the main object constitutionally of the Justice Department was to overturn Humphreys versus Humphreys executor. Humphreys executor from the FDR period was a case that is the basis for the independent agencies. It was a limitation on the ability of the president to dismiss someone in the executive branch. Congress would add four cause provisions. And FDR hated that. But it was, quote, a conservative court that upheld it. And so much of the explosion in the administrative state is not just due to FDR, it's due to a so-called conservative court. In any event, in this case, in which many thought maybe it would be the undoing of Humphreys, it was the undoing of Humphreys, but not as expected. It's interesting about this case because, as most of you probably recall, it was the independent counsel case. It, the independent counsel was a statute that for a long time was only used against Republicans. But when it was used against Bill Clinton, then all of a sudden the liberals awakened and realized, boy, this thing could be abused. Ken Starr thought the statute was terrible, and he proved to people it could be abused simply by following the power that is given to you. In any event, years ago, the liberal commentator during the Clinton period, uh, Richard Reeves, said how prescient Justice Scalia was. And then when Justice Scalia died, uh, what's her name uh, at the Post? Greenhouse. She said how prescient he was. It's not prescience, he understood the structure. It's not a crystal ball, it's going back and understanding the design of the structure and the structure is all about protecting liberty. The reason all of the framers and founders who were opposed to the Constitution agreed on separation of powers is that they believed that that was more important than a Bill of Rights in the protection of liberty. If the three branches were in the same hands of those who could make the law, enforce the law, and judge the law, that was the very definition of tyranny. Unfortunately, the progressives came along with Woodrow Wilson and others, and they turned against separation of powers 
and wanted something more like a parliamentary government and they wanted and gave us the administrative state. Well, in Morrison, you may remember this name or it may ring a bell with you, it really was around a woman named Gorsuch Burford. And this may be the reason that the current nominee is very conscious about the importance <coughs> of separation of powers. The nominee's mother was head of EPA. And as she famously said later on, if you come to Washington, make sure you have a big criminal defense insurance policy. And they were going after her and she was advised, and the president was advised by one Ted Olson, not to turn over documents to the Congress that they were demanding. Eventually there was a compromise, but the members of the Congress on the other party were not satisfied and they requested an independent counsel investigate Ted Olson for creating a constitutional crisis. It was they that created the crisis. He was simply doing his job. In this opinion, which dealt with two important aspects of separation of powers, the appointments clause and the business of removal, which is not in the text of the Constitution. The issues were whether there was a proper appointment, whether, um, uh, what's her name, Morrison, whether she was in fact uh, an inferior officer as her claim was, and Justice Scalia disputed that, whereas the majority accepted that she was an inferior officer, which meant that she could be appointed other than by the advice and consent role. But then there was also the issue of removal. And on the removal question, what the majority, meaning Chief Justice Rehnquist, did was to say, that they were going to ignore the limitation that was even in Humphreys. And that limitation was, Humphreys said, well, you know, there are certain appointments where you can condition the president's ability to remove. These are quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial. But there was no question here that it was quasi-anything. <coughs> this was a prosecutor, core executive power. And the way Chief Justice Rehnquist disposed of this was this line. It is in our present considered opinion. Boom, no other justification than that. Scalia on the other hand would come back and say, you know, sometimes a wolf comes in sheep's clothing. This wolf comes as a wolf. He understood the problem. Of course, he had just a few years before been head of the same office that Ted was at in the time. So he understood the pressure involved. If you read the opinion, it is full of citations from the Federalist. Second one I want to talk about is a much less well-known case. It's Young versus uh, X. Rel. Vuitton. You know, Vuitton from the fashion industry. In this case, it involved the appointment by a district judge of lawyers to prosecute a contempt. Now it was bad enough that the lawyers were, were involved with the winning party. So you had a terrible conflict here. But Justice Brennan, although not upholding that part of it, went on to say that courts cannot depend on the prosecutor to prosecute contempts. 
to vindicate the power of the courts, they must be able, must be able to appoint prosecutors if necessary. Of course, they should ask the prosecutor first. Well, you know, there's a nice line in Federalist 78 that Justice Scalia has quoted on why the federal judiciary is the least dangerous branch, why it has no power, no will, because ultimately it must depend on the executive to enforce its judgments. But in the age of Brennan and others, you know, that's an historical anachronism. Because I'm running on time, I'll do a little bit faster, 28. The last area I want to mention is in particular because I understand there are a number of judges here. And that was we always covered a lot of standing cases. And Justice Scalia's favorite topic in terms of the cases was actually standing cases, even though he, mid, he admitted that in law school he thought, what a boring subject. Why are we even studying this stuff? But as he pointed out, standing is the barrier that forces courts to restrict themselves to their legitimate jurisdiction. Now, jurisdiction may differ in the states under state constitutions, but under Article III, the courts are supposed to be confined to cases and controversies. And so in Lujan versus Defenders of Wildlife 1992 case, Justice Scalia had taken the earlier cases and extrapolated and clarified the three basic elements of standing that the party suing had to show that they were personally injured the injury was caused by the defendant and the courts could actually remedy that. That still is the law, in theory at least, but if you read standing cases, you realize that they often turn on the facts and in looking at the facts, often they can be manipulated. Thank you, I think I'm out of time. Judge Jeffrey Sutton sits on the United States Courts of Appeal for the Sixth Circuit, where he has served since 2003. Before that, he was a partner and associate with the law firm of Jones Day, with stints from 1992 to 1995 and 1998 to 2003. From 1995 to 1998, he was the state solicitor of Ohio, overseeing appellate litigation on behalf of the state and participating in complex litigation at the trial level. He has argued 12 cases in the United States Supreme Court and numerous cases in the state Supreme Courts and federal courts of appeal. Since 1993, Judge Sutton has been an adjunct professor of law at Ohio State University College of Law, where he teaches seminars on state constitutional law, the United States Supreme Court, and appellate advocacy. Since 2012, Judge Sutton has taught a class on state constitutional law at Harvard Law School. He served as a law clerk to Justices Powell and Scalia and Judge Meskell at the Second Circuit. Judge Sutton received his BA from Williams College and his JD from Ohio State University College of Law. Judge Sutton. All right. Thank you, uh, Justice Polston. Um, well, uh, John works by standing when he teaches, and I work by sitting as a judge, so I'm sitting here. Uh, a little more comfortable, at least for today. I keep this pretty casual. Um, thank you to the uh, Florida Federalist Society for hosting this event uh, and quite wisely hosting it in February. That's really appreciate that being from Ohio. Um, I thought I mentioned might mention something the uh, Columbus chapter is doing. Well, first of all, we're having our first statewide convention this year. Uh, I guess you've been doing this 
for a few years, but one idea you might try is this February 13th, which of course is the one year anniversary of Justice Scalia's death, uh, quite a large group of us are gonna get together and um, actually read some of his opinions, and we're hoping to make this an annual event. So you might think about doing it. We're looking forward to it, and um, I'm pretty sure it'll work pretty well, and if we get bored, we're gonna have alcohol. So uh, <laughs> I think it should be just fine. Um, so my, uh, my task today is, is to talk a little bit about um, Justice Scalia's theory of originalism um, and its opponent, um, living constitutionalism, um, which really comes down to the idea of whether the interpretations of texts, and there's no reason just to think about it in terms of the Constitution, anything, regulations, statutes, <coughs> Constitution, are you looking for a fixed meaning or is it a fluid evolving meaning? And of course, Justice Scalia took the idea that uh, constitutions like all text, perhaps most importantly with constitutions, ought to be fixed as opposed to fluid and susceptible to evolving with the times. So I'll, I'm gonna give a couple of what I think are his explanations for it, perhaps flavored with some of my own and then take on some of the critiques of originalism. So uh, a place to start is where John left off. Um, I do agree with John that the starting point with Justice Scalia on every feature of his jurisprudence is separation of powers. He was an administrative law professor. He worked at OLC. Uh, I think that really informed everything he, he thought about when it came to the job of a judge and interpretation. And I think the reason originalism is supported by his perspective on separation of powers is that if judges are allowed to be a committee of nine that amends the Constitution over time, it obviously allows one of the three branches of the national government to aggrandize power over time. And surely that, of course, is exactly what has happened over the last 227 years or so. Uh, so his separation of powers perspective certainly informs that approach. I, I would say text informs that approach. It turns out the Constitution has its own process for evolving. It's not interpretation. It's, of course, the amendment process. So it's very strange to create a document which by its terms tells you how to change this or that provision <coughs> that has gotten old, out of date, doesn't make sense, or you somehow need to accommodate some norm. When the document tells you how to change the Constitution, you think the first order of business was to use that approach as opposed to allowing as few as five justices on the U.S. Supreme Court to change it themselves and effectively become their own amendment process. Respect for democracy, I would say, would be a third explanation for the justice perspective on this. Um, you can think of the Constitution as a social contract where the governed are giving up power to those governing them and the point of the Constitution was to create the terms of that social contract. And yes, they give up certain rights. They give power to presidents. They say there are some things that cannot be ruled upon by democracy in the Bill of Rights. But those things not in the Constitution, they of course reserved for themselves, which takes you back to the whole point of 1776 and that revolution was to govern themselves. And the first act in 1789 is to decide what the charter is gonna be, what rights they're giving up, and after that, everything else is up to the very point they had the revolution, which was to govern themselves through democracy. The next thing he would say 
is that why in the world would you write this thing down in words as opposed to setting it to music if you're going to let it evolve over time according to the preferences of five out of nine justices? And just think about it in the area of, of criminal procedure. I mean, we, we happen to live in an age where it seems to me happily Judges and citizens are a little more sensitive to the rights of criminals than perhaps they used to be, sensitive to overcriminalization, to high penalties. But we, you know, for the first decade and a half of my professional career as a lawyer, we lived in very much in a law and order age. If you've got a, you know, at least half of the Bill of Rights are criminal procedure protections. If you're allowed to let these things evolve over time, of course the current times are going to affect what happens, and it leads to the risk that you dilute the guarantee. Same thing, of course, would be true of free speech, where you know quite often the speech that's being protected is something <coughs> that people are quite contemptuous of. And if it can evolve, the risk is it will be diluted. The next point is that it's quite consistent with the judicial oath. Uh, Justice Scalia was not the kind of person to take oaths lightly. Um, as a judge, I, I, I definitely have an appreciation for this point. I think judges, you know, the oath says to treat people fairly, uh, rich, poor, so forth. I think by and large judges do pretty well when it comes to the parties in front of them. I think where it gets tricky for judges is not the case of the seen parties in the case before them, it's the unseen parties in the case down the road. And one of the beauties of originalism is it forces the judge to decide a principle that resolves a case in front of them, one person loses, one person wins, but then they have to stand by that principle in the next case. Of course, if law evolves, how will you ever know where you're treating seen and unseen cases alike? In fact, it leads, I think, quite often to discriminatory treatment between cases, which is exactly what judges should not be doing. The other thing that it does is it, and I think again, just with here, here Justice Scalia, I don't think he would have used this as a justification, but his career proves it, it's more likely to lead to neutral outcomes. With Justice Scalia, you have a, you know, his first professional job in government was as a lawyer for the Nixon administration, very much a law and order administration. By the end of his tenure on the court, I think it's fair to say he probably was the most reliable vote for criminal defendants when it came to is criminal procedure issues, rights to confrontation, sentencing, rule of lenity. Um, clearly, uh, he was not voting his policy outcomes. Whereas if you have an approach to judging that says text is not dispositive, evolving norms are dispositive, is it not highly risky that those evolving norms are going to mirror the person who's deciding what the norms are and mirror their policy preferences at a given time? And you have to ask yourself, you know, what is the scorecard for living constitutionalism? There's a scorecard for originalism. You get a decision, you know what the justice says he or she is doing, why they're doing it, and you can go look at the history, you can look at the text, and you can say right or wrong, the judge can be judged. With living constitutionalism, I have no idea how to judge the judges. Um, every day is a new day, every day reflects perhaps a new norm. So one of the beauties of originalism, and I think it's quite wonderful in a democracy like ours, is that at the end of the day, the judges themselves can be judged, and that's not a bad thing. The last thing it does, and uh, this is pretty current from the, you know, the last year, um, we just had a presidential election that perhaps had a lot of causes and effects, but I don't think it's an exaggeration to say Justice Scalia's a death 
may have tilted the election one way versus the other. How do you select judges for a job in which text is not fixed, legal texts are not fixed? They're allowed to evolve over time to reflect the norms, preferences of the judges there. I have no idea what that confirmation process looks like. Whereas if you have a process that selects judges based on their understanding of law, their ability to interpret law, their ability to apply consistent neutral principles, that I understand. Everything else looks very much like a political election. Um, some would say this election was a proxy for who the next justice would be. That's not a great sign in a democracy if that's where we've gotten. So um, a couple of the critiques quick, quick, quickly and answers. Um, well, one critique is that it freezes us in time. It leaves us in an 18th century world. Um, of course, that's a caricature. It does no such thing. The document allows for amendment. And of course, where it doesn't address an issue, it allows for change through democracy, which is exactly the power the people reserved in ratifying the document. It's a caricature to say it doesn't apply to new technologies, cell phones, new devices by the police to seek out criminals. Of course, the same type of privacy that the Fourth Amendment guaranteed in 1791 is the one it gets today. Indeed, a case that illustrates this perfectly is the Kylo case, where Justice Scalia in a 5-4 decision says police cannot use thermal imaging devices to tell whether someone is growing marijuana in their house. The dissent, interesting, is, interestingly, is written by Justice Stevens. So you have an outcome for the criminal, the originalist standing by the original privacy protection, the changing norm justice not doing so. Another criticism is that the framers represented a very no narrow scope of Americans, white, male, property owners. Sure enough, what can you say? Uh, Jefferson thought that's exactly why we should have a new convention every 20 years. Maybe we should have a convention. But the key feature is that you still can amend the document to reflect new norms, new groups of people with power in society, and of course you still have democracy. I sometimes think we Americans are obsessed with counter-majoritarian, constitutional, judicially enforceable rights. I'm not so sure that's really the prized right. I sometimes think the 1964 Civil Rights Act is the best you can hope for in a democracy where you get a culture in which a majority of Americans decide to protect a minority of Americans. Which do you rather want? Which do you want? Five out of nine justices protecting minoritarian rights or a culture in which the majority thinks that's the right thing to do? I think there's a lot to be said for the 64 Civil Rights Act. The last point I'll make and then I'll turn it over is, um, well, you have to have living constitutionalism. You have to have evolving text because the Constitution's so difficult to change. It is difficult to change. That might be the one defect in it. It takes three quarters of the states. That would be very difficult today. But it's very strange to respond to that problem by saying, ah, here's the answer. We'll let the judges change it to account for new times, and then we'll say stare decisis means you can't change that. So, if you're going to say the judges can change it, I'm not sure I understand why stare decisis has any role whatsoever. In a living constitutionalism world, norms can go up and they can go down. So it's very strange to have it both ways, to say we're going to get around the three-quarters ratification problem, amend the Constitution ourselves, and then say there's some super-duper stare decisis right to leave it exactly as it is, not in 1791, by the way, 
1961, all right? I mean, that's pretty strange to say that we're gonna freeze it in time just at a different period of time. If you don't like amending the Constitution, you wanna have living constitutionalism, don't be unhappy when things go up and down. So thank you very much and turn to the next. Rachel Kovner graduated from Harvard College and Stanford Law School. She clerked for Judge Harvey Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit and then for Justice Scalia. After clerking, she worked as a prosecutor in the United States Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. She joined the Solicitor General's Office where she has worked for the past three and a half years. Rachel Kovner. Uh, Thanks, and, and thanks for having me here. Um, I was going to talk for a few minutes about uh, Justice Scalia and statutory interpretation. Um, and I think w one of the ways that you know that that was a topic that was uh, near and dear to Justice Scalia's heart is that uh, in addition to writing innumerable opinions on statutory topics, he also wrote two books about it. Um, the first was Matter of Interpretation, uh, which was published in 1997, a little more than a decade after Justice Scalia joined the court. And then the second, I think, main work of his on statutory interpretation was Reading Law, the Interpretation of Legal Texts, which he wrote with Brian Garner and came out uh, just five years ago in 2012. I think one way of understanding uh, the impact that Justice Scalia had on statutory interpretation um, on the courts might be to, to contrast those two books and, and sort of look at the projects that Justice Scalia thought were worth undertaking at those sort of two different times in his career. And so matter of interpretation is, is basically a, a work of advocacy on behalf of textualism. Um, Justice Scalia writes in it that American courts had no generally accepted and consistently applied theory of statutory interpretation. And the book is basically his pitch that, that textualism should be that theory. Um, and the principles that he's setting out are, are principles that you're probably all um, familiar with. Um, you know, a basic tenant that relates to the separation of powers um, principles that Professor Baker and, and Judge Sutton are discussing is, is that um, judges shouldn't try to discern the, the intent of the legislature. Um, instead, they should look at what the legislature actually enacted, uh, the objective meaning of the statute, and, and, and that's sort of the law that governs. Um, and I think everybody here is probably also familiar with some of the basic tools that Justice Scalia advocated uh, to do that. Um, they include the use of dictionaries to identify just the ordinary meaning of the words that the legislator, legislature enacted. Um, and they include the use of things like canons of construction, um, the sort of rules, rules of the road that correspond to how ordinary language works and, and can be applied neutrally uh, across different cases. So matter of interpretation explains these techniques. Uh, it explains how they contrast with other techniques. Um, you know, it attacks the idea of trying to sort of divine the spirit of the statute and then um, applying that spirit rather than the text of the statute. Um, and then it, it obviously attacks uh, the idea of using legislative history to interpret the uh, meaning of a statute over and above the, the text. So if you jump forward to 2012, um, which is most of the way then through the, through the career that Justice Scalia had on the bench, it's sort of interesting to see how that book is again about textualism but has a, a pretty different focus because this is basically a, a how-to book about textualism. And it goes through you know, 60 or so um, cans of how you engage in textualist interpretation. 
Um, it seems to me that this is basically the book that you'd write if you understand that your arguments about the why of textualism have carried the day for at least a lot of judges, um, so that there's a huge need for a book that's basically a how-to. Um, and so to the extent that, that that was sort of the landscape that Justice Scalia saw or something that was motivating him um, to write that book, I think there are a bunch of indicators that you can see today that indicate that he was right about that. The textualism has, um, if not entirely carried the day, um, at least uh, holds great sway on, on the courts in the way that it didn't when uh, Justice Scalia first took the bench. Um, a couple data points are if you, Justice uh, Kagan gave uh, what I think is called the Scalia Lecture at, at Harvard Law School a little over a year ago, and her topic was, was uh, statutory interpretation, the reading of statutes. And I think her thesis was, and I think I'm, I'm quoting now, uh, we are all textualists now in a way that was not remotely true when Justice Scalia joined the bench. And she said, Justice Scalia has taught everybody how to do statutory interpretation differently. And I really do mean pretty much taught everybody. Not necessarily on legislative history, but the text is really the, the starting point for most decisions across a, an ideological spectrum. And the second more recent data point I'd offer is that uh, in the tribute that, that Judge Gorsuch uh, penned for Justice Scalia shortly after he passed away, the tribute is, is first and foremost basically a, a defense of textualism and a, an appreciation of uh, Justice Scalia's work in that area. And just Judge Gorsuch writes that though the critics are loud and the temptations to join them might be many, mark me down as a believer that the <coughs> traditional account of the judicial role that Justice Scalia defended will endure. So I think there's every indication that if Judge Gorsuch is confirmed to that seat, um, it'll continue to be a, an influential seat for textualism uh, for the foreseeable future. Professor Michael T. Morley graduated Princeton University and Yale Law School. After clerking for Judge uh, Gerald Bard Choflat for the 11th Circuit, he worked as a commercial and appellate litigator at Williams and Connolly in Washington, D.C. He then received a Schedule C appointment in the administration of President George W. Bush as Special Assistant to the General Counsel of the Army. Morley was counsel of record in the U.S. Supreme Court of Sean McCutcheon in the landmark First Amendment case, McCutcheon versus FEC. He taught at Harvard Law School as a Clemenko Fellow and Lecturer on Law and is presently Assistant Professor of Law at Barry University School of Law in Orlando, where he teaches contracts, remedies, constitutional law, and election law. Professor Morley. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here today to have the opportunity to speak with you. I'd like to thank the Federalist Society, Justice Paulson, Elena, and everyone else who put in so much hard work in making this panel happen. My presentation today will focus on a different and typically overlooked aspect of Justice Scalia's originalism. His view of the constitutional relationship between the political branches of government and the electoral process. Before delving into Justice Scalia's jurisprudence in this area, however, I need to spend just a minute or two laying a foundation. With our modern focus on the right to vote, it's easy to forget that this constitutional right is essentially judicially created. The structure of the Constitution of 1789, the Constitution as originally enacted, gave political entities virtually plenary control over elections. Obviously, there were no elections for judges, 
State legislatures appointed U.S. senators. State legislatures decided how presidential electors would get selected. The only office subject to election was the U.S. House of Representatives. But even there, the qualifications clause entitled a person to vote only if they were already allowed to vote for the more populous house of their state legislature, another matter controlled by state law. State legislatures and Congress were responsible for determining the times, places, and manner of federal elections, and each House of Congress was the sole judge of the elections, qualifications, and returns of its own members. The Houses of Congress together were responsible for determining for determining the validity and counting electoral votes. So the Constitution was structured to entrust the political branches and not the courts to determine both the rules for elections and their outcomes. The Due Process and Equal Protection Clauses of the 14th Amendment, the modern source of the right to vote, weren't originally intended to protect political rights. Language that would have expressly created a right to vote or prohibited discrimination in voting was rejected, a point that the constitutional text makes plain in two respects. Section two of the 14th Amendment gives states a choice between either expanding the franchise or suffering a reduction in representation in the House of Representatives and the Electoral College, a consequence, a remedy that Congress is empowered to impose. And the 15th Amendment was enacted a few years later to expressly prohibit racial discrimination in voting, a change that would have been near surplusage had the equal protection done so. Subsequent amendments prohibited states from denying the right to vote on certain specified grounds, race, sex, age for those over 18, but did not otherwise alter the fundamental structure of the political branches primarily having responsibility for the electoral process. Throughout Justice Scalia's tenure on the court, the, many of the liberal-leaning members fundamentally rejected this constitutional structure, and Justice Scalia repeatedly fought to enforce it. One of the most blamed examples of this is the Supreme Court's ruling in Arizona State Legislature versus Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission. As we just discussed, the Elections Clause of the Constitution specifically vests the legislature of each state with the power to regulate congressional elections. Justice Ginsburg, in the Arizona State Legislature case, wrote for a five-justice majority that the word legislature does not mean the legislature. It means any lawmaking process authorized by state law. The majority upheld a state constitutional amendment enacted via public referendum rather than by the legislature that stripped the legislature of its power to draw congressional district lines and transferred that authority to an independent redistricting commission. The opinion explained that this, opinion, that this commission was a great idea because they were going to be, it was going to be bipartisan, the lines were going to be drawn in a fair manner, it was going to make elections better. Justice Scalia both joined in a four-justice dissent and also penned his own stinging dissent. Among other things, he argued that the original understanding of the word legislature, as well as its consistent use throughout the Constitution, clearly refers to the multi-member body of elected officials that periodically convenes within each state, 
And the Constitution makes that body solely responsible for drawing congressional district lines. His opinions consistently show his refusal to reshape the electoral process or to restructure the electoral process set forth in the Constitution to more closely accord with any personally held notions of fairness. Justice Scalia wrote for a four-justice plurality in Vyeth versus Jubilee, in which partisan gerrymandering was challenged as unconstitutional. With partisan gerrymandering, legislative district lines for either Congress or state legislature are drawn ostensibly to favor candidates from a particular party. Justice Scalia, writing for the plurality, held that such claims were non-justiciable. He concluded that nothing in the Constitution establishes rules for determining whether a congressional district is fair or unfair or confers an improper partisan advantage. He said, because no judicially discernible and manageable standards existed for adjudicating such claims, under Baker v. Carr, it was inappropriate for the court to exercise jurisdiction over the case. He further emphasized, despite objections about the alleged unfairness of the gerrymandered districts, quote, the Constitution clearly contemplates districting by political entities, and unsurprisingly, that turns out to be the root and branch as a matter of politics. In New York State Board of Elections versus Lopez Torres, Justice Scalia again rejected appeals to his personal subjective sense of fairness as a basis for overriding constitutional principles. The plaintiff argued that it was unconstitutional for the New York Democratic Party, pursuant to a state statute, to select its nominees for state judges at a political convention because party bosses could manipulate the process, they would be able to give advantage to their personally favored candidates, and it just wasn't fair. Justice Scalia recognized that political parties have a First Amendment right of association to conduct their own affairs, particularly when it comes to the nomination of candidates, and he held none of our cases establish an individual's constitutional right to have what he quote his quotes, a fair shot at winning the party's nomination. What constitutes a fair shot is hardly a manageable constitutional question for judges, especially where traditional electoral practices give no hint of such a requirement. Party conventions, he continued, with their attendant smoke-filled rooms and domination by party leaders, have long been an accepted manner of selecting party candidates. He reiterated the solicitude for the First Amendment rights of political parties in California Democratic Party v. Jones, holding that a state may not require parties to nominate their candidates based on a blanket primary in which any voter may unilaterally choose to decide to participate in any party's primary. Even in Bush v. Gore, which obviously holds special significance here in Florida, which was largely based on equal protection precedents recognizing a right to vote, Justice Scalia joined in Chief Justice Rehnquist's concurring opinion to reiterate that because the presidential electors clause confers power to regulate presidential elections not on states as a whole, but specifically on state legislatures, 
Federal courts have a unique obligation to pay special attention to the plain text of state statutes regulating presidential elections rather than deferring to the interpretations or glosses that state courts may place upon them. So because of this constitutional delegation of authority, specifically to the political branch, the legislature within the state, this, the, the concurring opinion in which Justice Scalia joined essentially argued there is a super strong constitutionally mandated canon of plain meaning that federal courts are bound to apply. Throughout these cases and many more that we could discuss, Justice Scalia's originalism and faithfulness to the structure of the Constitution led him to reject repeated attempts to substitute his own personal judgment about the requirements for fair elections for the electoral structure that the Constitution clearly puts forth. Thank you. Now I'm going to have a few minutes discussion among the panels, and I would uh, like to take the opportunity because so many of the panelist members have had uh, up close and personal contact with Justice Scalia and worked with him. Uh, I would like to invite them to be able to comment on their experiences with Justice Scalia. Uh, we, I, I've known him as the jurist and seen him from afar, but uh, did not have the pleasure of knowing him on a very personal basis as the panelist members. So. I invite them uh, now to share with them any personal experiences about uh, Justice Scalia, the man. Well, I, I suppose anybody who didn't know him personally and simply read the newspapers would have thought he was a this great ogre. Um, he had an amazing sense of humor that anybody who had met him even once would understand. And was able to charm all kinds of people. And I asked him, I told him, I said, I don't know how you get along with some of your colleagues. I would, you know, I would just pull out my hair if I had to be up there. But he, he didn't take it personally. <coughs> he, he really hit hard in his opinions and some of his colleagues were not too happy with some of the blows. Uh, but it basically, not always, but basically, you know, it's just, it's a punching match as far as he was concerned, but he didn't take it personally. The other things would be about traveling. Just three weeks after he died, he was supposed to come down to Amelia Island. We had uh, a couple of talks and dinners, but most importantly, fishing. And uh, most of the travel had to do with hunting or fishing, wherever it was. And so when the Federal Society held our CLEs on separation of powers. Most of them were in Colorado. One was at Lake Tahoe, one was at Park City. But it was always followed by fly fishing. And he and I went to Chile and f went fly fishing on his birthday, his last birthday, his 79th. Um, he didn't make it to, to his 80th. But um, in Europe, too, we traveled. And when you travel, Traveling with Justice Scalia was a white knuckle experience if he was driving. I don't know how Maureen stood it, but we'd sit in the back seat and, and these curves in Greece, he would just go all over. And one of the other parties with us said, you know, with Nino, it's, uh, it's not miles a minute, it's monuments an hour. So we would go one, one place to another to another. He would get there and he always had a camera. Wherever he went, 
it's click, click, click. I said to him one day, what, what are you going to do with them? Oh, I don't do anything with them. I just take the pictures. So somebody could have a wonderful Travel with Nino uh, album just by going back and getting the thousands of pictures he's taken that have never been processed. Well, um, just a couple points. Um, everything he did, he did with just so much energy. I mean, one of the great things about working with him as a clerk is uh, every day he was just he was just ready to go, and he, he really thought he could do anything. And he was just he's just this guy, a bundle of energy, a lot of confidence. And so I, there's two ways I can illustrate that. One that's not super flattering to him, and then maybe the other is a little more flattering. The not super flattering thing was he was. He's always fighting his weight, so he's constantly either playing with diets or new exercise regimes. And uh, my year, his exercise regime consisted of squash and some tennis, and I apparently was the only guy that could play racket sports, so I played a lot with him, once or twice a week, particularly squash. Um, the other guys were too smart to have spent any time playing squash or tennis, I'm afraid. And so, you know, the first time I'm doing this, you know, I'm 30, he's maybe mid-50s at that point, and, you know, not... You wouldn't look at him and say Byron White. I mean, he was—he just—he wasn't an athlete. And he didn't look like an athlete, and uh, and so I'm thinking this first time we play, it's oh, this is how cute, you know. I'll just I'll uh, you know keep it going, and he'll sweat a little, and all will be good. But he, he assuredly wouldn't expect to win, and um, he did expect to win. <laughs> and you should have known that. Ab absolutely, absolutely delusional. I mean, I I was not. <laughs> I was not uh, very smart, but I was a very good athlete, and uh, so and, I, and he should have appreciated it. And so the first the first time we played, I did what I should do, which you know I didn't crush him, but I would I I won when I needed to win. And uh, and the whole drive back to the court, Mr. Grouchy did did, did not <laughs> did not want to talk about anything, and I just was like kidding me you got on the US Supreme Court and you have this personality <laughs> and so of course a practical man that I am I didn't lecture him or tell him how he should behave I of course started to let him win and uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm just so in it and then he'd be happy and then I, I I'm thinking I just don't, I can't believe how easy it is for you to think you beat me. And uh, <laughs> so, I don't know, so I, as I said, that was less flattering. But, but, I, but there is something in there that's worth identifying. Um, he really, he had confidence in a good way. I mean, it's, it's a really wonderful thing. I, I, I credit his parents, I mean, he was the only child, only child of the whole generation, and he got a lot of love. And I think uh, that self-esteem is pretty cool. I think, I, I it's a good thing he didn't go on the squash circuit, but I, I do think it, it, sets, it, it had an effect on how well he, he did in his career. So the other thing was, you know, I, I, I worked for him. I was hired by Justice Powell, but I, um, and he was a retired justice, but the clerks for retired justice get to pick which active justice they'd like to work for. And I was pretty young in the law at that time. I mean, I did admire his stuff, and I admired Bork's stuff back then, but I really, it wasn't a very sophisticated understanding. But the one thing I did know is I loved his writing. And, and by the way, I really think that's going to be a big effect on his legacy. If you want to read someone's writing, you're going to read it. If you read it, you're going to learn their approach to judging. And it's a great way to have an impact. So I, I thought the whole year was going to be about, if nothing else happens, I'm going to learn to write like Justice Scalia. 
you know, I was a little worried going into this project because I thought, you know, he went to Harvard, I went to Ohio State, he's an only child, I'm one of six, the love was diluted, <laughs> all these other kids, and um, I just thought there were a lot of reasons I was gonna realize the secret to his writing was something that would be unattainable for me. Well, sadly, the end of the year came and went, and I, I never really saw one thing, but this one story, to me, comes the closest to capturing uh, his writing and why he, he write, wrote so effectively. I'd worked on a draft opinion, I gave it to him, he brought it home and these old floppy disks and came back the next morning, brought all five of us, I was the fifth clerk, so all five of us sat down and he gave us this dramatic reading of the, uh, the opinion that he'd worked on, of course, spun my straw into his gold, so all of my stuff was completely gone, which <laughs> I didn't, didn't like. And believe me, the next time we played squash, I crushed him. Uh, <laughs> we each had comparative advantages, uh, but, um, so there were two things. I mean, you, you saw, he gave this dramatic reading. You thought it was Shakespeare pauses, mm -hmm. volume going up and down. And of course, it's just dry as dust law. <laughs> and I think, you know, as, as odd as it was, I, I think his joy, I mean, true joy in having written well really was it. I mean, he just, he got such joy out of the um, rhythm of language, having come up with effective ways to say things. The reason he kept going back to the well, and the well always had something in it, is he wanted there to be something in it, and it was just pure desire. Um, you know, if you read his opinions in the DC Circuit, some of his early work, you see some of the Scalia, but it gets better and better. And so, I mean, he, I think he really grows, grew. So I, th I really think he was the writer he was because he wanted to be the writer he was, not some innate gift that all of us, the rest of us, are denied. Um, well, I thought Justice Scalia was like a fantastic. Um, boss, a great person to, to clerk for. I mean, I clerked for him sort of closer to the end, I think, of his tenure on the court, and so he had had like a million clerks, and he obviously had a big family and a very rich um, social life outside of the court, but, uh, you know, for, and he would joke about sort of like how clerks were totally fungible to him, and, you know, one was as good as another, but um, he, I think, despite that, would really go out of his way to, um, you know, take us out to his favorite pizza place uh, in D.C. Um, or, you know, he would uh, go hunting and then have us over for dinner to eat uh, something that he had hunted or um, take us out, you know, uh, shooting uh, one of the uh, things that he enjoyed doing. So, you know, it was, and, and you know, host regular clerk reunions and sort of the list goes on and on. I think even though um, he had, Plenty of other people to uh, spend time with. Uh, he always sort of made made time to include um, his clerks. And then, you know, on the work side, he was, you know, a, a fantastic person to work for. Obviously, you know, you could learn so much from him just from um, reading his writing and from talking with him about cases. But I think another really special thing about um, clerking for Justice Scalia, and again, even though he had been at it for um, you know decades by the time I clerked for him, was he would really. Um, you know, pay his clerks the compliment of um, engaging with them and, and taking them seriously. So even if he had really strong views about a case, and uh, even if at the end of the day you were absolutely unsuccessful in uh, changing his views about the case in any way, if you saw it differently, he was willing to invest the time in you know sitting down with you and uh, going back and forth, and you know having you say the reasons why you thought he was wrong, and and vice versa with his clerks for sort of hours on end after after argument. Um, so that was a really special um, thing about working for him. 
But he would change his mind sometimes. Yeah, you, for you sure. could get him yeah. to change his mind. He could change his mind. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. You, uh, the panelist members have uh, chosen their topics and uh, commented on them. You've heard your colleagues speak today on other topics. Is there anything that you would like to uh, perhaps add or comment on these other topics that you did not speak on or, uh, or perhaps one that hasn't been talked on today? I'd just make one comment about originalism and textualism. Some people run these two things together and he didn't, the justice didn't always clearly distinguish, but textualism applies obviously both to statutes and the Constitution as Judge Sutton said. But to understand originalism, it's, it's more than that. It's not just the text because there are different ways of reading the constitutional text if you don't have in the back of your mind the structure as the justice understood it, as the design of the Constitution was there. If you have or want to have a different viewpoint, you can take things, the text, and take them out of context and lead yourself to different results. That's why it is quite possible to have different views of originalism, if you will, but some people are simply looking at the text but not looking at the structure when they're reading <coughs> the text, and they may simply go into history without paying that much attention to the structure. I was gonna comment on one thing Michael said and then make a comment on what I said, which is another way of saying something I didn't get a chance to say during my presentation. Um, so Michael, this is kind of a question, but I've always wondered, this is to me a lesson about unintended consequences of a fluid interpretation of the Constitution, of living constitutionalism. So one unintended consequence, it seems to me, of the one person, one vote cases, so Baker versus Carr and Reynolds versus Sims, and the idea there was, well, boy, these rural legislatures are having an undue influence on policy making within the state, it's not fair, um, and so, you know, most people would agree that was not an originalist decision, and the best example is that the U.S. Senate, of course, has two representatives from each state, so that's not a one-person, one-vote situation across the country. Um, and then you got into Viet, the political or slash partisan ger gerrymandering. Well, you could make the argument that an unintended consequence of Reynolds versus Sims and Baker versus Carr is it has worsened political gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. Why? It compels it every 10 years. The only way to comply, for us, any state to comply with one person, one vote, is after the census every 10 years, is to go back. And every 10 years, I promise you, in every state, there's enough population shifting, you have to go back to the drawing board. So in states like mine, where states would often be just as happy to say, just let it go, we're good, this is kind of a pain, and everyone wants to have a better seat, and so forth, they're forced to do it by Baker versus Carr and Reynolds versus Sims. So maybe the question, if they ever have another political gerrymandering case, is whether that issue proves Baker versus Carr was wrong. <laughs> but anyway, unintended consequences. The thing I meant to say earlier, I, I wanted to just do a quick thing on Heller and originalism. Of course, as Senator Cruz said, um, everyone loves to note that all nine justices were using originalism in Heller. Um, I think. All justices start, by the way, with originalism. So in one sense, all justices who ever served at least start there. The question is whether they stop there. 
what's interesting, and I wish if I'd been Justice Scalia, uh, his clerk, or had been working on the opinion, I, I would have had a hard time resisting saying this at the end of his very originalist Heller opinion. Little asterisks. I note, by the way, that my good friends, Justice Stevens and Justice Breyer, have decided to, to debate this case entirely on originalist grounds. I say that not for the reason you'd think, to stick it in their eye that we're now all originalists. <laughs> it's because I want to know what they think evolving norms would say about the idea of a person being able to possess a handgun in their house lawfully when there's no reason to deny it to them based on disability, prior criminal violations. I think it's pretty hard to find elected officials anywhere in this country that think a citizen should be denied the right just to a handgun for self-protection. The debates are about shotguns, assault weapons, and so on. The reason Justice Stevens and Justice Breyer debated that case entirely on originalist grounds is they had no way of winning it on evolving constitutionalism grounds. When you have a next Second Amendment case about shotguns, assault weapons, then you'll see people talking about evolving norms because evolving norms are a little more helpful there than they are with the individual's right to possess a handgun. So that should suggest that it's a rather opportunistic doctrine. One of the really interesting questions that even originalist just that even originalist justices face, and I would, I would be very interested in hearing Judge Sutton's or anyone else's views on this, is the relationship between originalism and stare decisis, right? Because it's very seldom the case that a judge is ever able to write on a completely blank slate and they're- uh, The Third Amendment, I'm waiting, <laughs> I'm waiting, it's gonna happen. <laughs> there, there will often be situations where the case that comes before the, and obviously a circuit court is, is, is situated a little bit differently than the Supreme Court, there will be non-originalist precedents many times that confine the judge's discretion. And certainly at the Supreme Court then the question becomes to what extent, if any, should justices feel bound or defer as a matter of stare decisis even to opinions that they believe are based on the wrong methodology that don't apply an originalist approach as opposed to using that error of methodology as a, as a rationale for overturning the, the precedent. Well, I mean, the Court of Appeals judge is kind of stuck, right? We're intermediate, and um, so, we, you know, we don't really have, we have stare decisis within our own court, but I mean, in terms of the big constitutional rulings, we're talking about U.S. Supreme Court decisions, and we, of course, can't change those. I think you're quite right that in that sense, methodology is overrated, because most of the cases are interpreting quite a few precedents, some of which have originalist tones to them, some of which are pragmatic, some of which are evolving constitutionalism and um, you know if you're Justice Thomas you know and you have to admire I mean I think that's what he's trying to come to grips with here he's trying to be principled he's very skeptical about stare decisis in constitutional cases I think in part for this reason um, what you might say you might you might argue that stare decisis in constitutional cases should be a little different in two types of cases um, in the case where it's a mistake in other words where you know it's, it's just hard to figure this out, and the most you can say later on is this just looks like they deployed the methodology incorrectly. You know, I could see weighting the scales a little more highly towards stare decisis and preserving it, but when, by its term, I, I, I just don't, I mean, I, I guess I'd really like to hear what a living constitutionalist would say about this, but I just don't quite understand the idea 
that we don't have to pay attention to original meaning, we're allowed to pay attention to an evolving norm. Having established that evolving norm as the constitutional rule, it's now insulated from new evolving norms. I, I'm just not sure I understand how that works. I mean, but maybe I'm not the right guy to ask, but I, that would be my question for them if I had a colleague and was trying to figure that out. And I guess I'd say the same thing about pragmatism. If the point is cost benefits and how is it working, why would you ever freeze in time the how is it working decision? Because society does change and the how it's working slash cost benefit analysis might change. Even not, not that you change it every five years, but surely 50 years later, why wouldn't you be allowed to revisit it if by its terms it's a cost benefit pragmatic analysis? So, but you are right. I mean, at the US Supreme Court, most of the time, there, I mean, and Justice Scalia, who I think followed stare decisis much more than Justice Thomas, has a lot of decisions where he's really apply, he's interpreting evolving norm cases. And, you know, that's tricky. I think, I think quite often what he said would, would be this far and no further was one way he dealt with that. Hamilton says in Federalist 78 that judges will be down by bound down by precedent, by stare decisis. So it's a ringing endorsement of that. You could say, well, as an originalist, you have to be bound by it. Part of the context, however, is that's written before there is a Bill of Rights. And the rights that they were talking about were the same rights, but they viewed them as common law rights, which is what they were until we have the Bill of Rights. In other words, Federalist 78 talks about protecting individual rights and then goes on to say a Bill of Rights would be dangerous. The real danger has occurred in elevating certain rights to a constitutional status so that courts can put the constitutional stamp on it. And this got w worse after the, uh, during the period of the New Deal where <coughs> Swift versus Tyson was overruled by Erie. And a lot of things that in the past would have been deemed common law all of a sudden become constitutional. So we have constitutionalized many rights that were con common law rights. And look at the growth of constitutional law. It's, it's very heavily Bill of Rights issues and that the court can't touch. So to really unravel your question, you've got to go through several changes that have occurred over time that make it very difficult to actually get on the Bill of Rights questions. Because on the structural questions, you don't have the same kind of complexity. Well, a large part for that is because the court has interpreted Article I, Section 8 out of the Constitution. The Commerce Clause is essentially the plenary power clause. Yeah. And so you skip straight down to step two. You know, is there? Yeah, this is one of Justice Scalia's arguable, uh, what, what do we say here? I mean, rage, right? I mean, but I, you know, of course, he had Prince and he had uh, Sibelius. Uh, so it's not clear, but he. He did seem to prioritize the horizontal separation of powers over the vertical, I would say. Yeah, I know. Well, when we would, we would debate this, he would say sometimes that that's water under the bridge. And I said, well, you're a water under the bridge guy, but I'm an originalist. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was always the way to get his attention. I'll flank him on the originalism. That's good. <laughs> okay, we have about 20 minutes for questions from the audience. So if you would uh, step up to the microphone, introduce yourself, and uh, ask the question. Good evening, Russell Kershey from Punta Gorda. Um, I was hoping that the folks on the panel who knew uh, Justice Scalia could comment on his relationship with uh, the more liberal member of the court, uh, Justice Ginsburg. I've got a good story on that one. 
um, I mean, John referred to this earlier. They, the, their friendship was quite sincere. It's, it's yeah. really, as a lower court judge, I was really glad to see most almost all lawyers and most Americans knew about this friendship, which is, is great to see. But I, I witnessed it once. I was in chambers talking to him, and uh, it's time to go. And on the table were two dozen roses. And uh, he goes, oh, Jeff, it's Ruth's birthday. I got to bring her these roses. And I'm like, whoa, two dozen roses? You know, I've been married 25 years. I don't think I've gotten a total of 24 roses for my wife. And um, one thing you learn about Justice Scalia is a bit of a wise guy, so he wouldn't let it go at that. And he said, well, uh, Jeff, uh, you ought to try it sometime. <laughs> I thought that was a little obnoxious, so I responded by saying, well, Justice, how effective has this been anyway? When was the last time Justice Ginsburg voted with you on any consequential case at all? And he did, to his credit, say some things are more important than votes. Um, so. You know, when people criticize his writing and how tough he could be, just go look at U.S. versus Virginia, United versus Virginia, the VMI case. I mean, he was as hard as her, on her as he was on anybody else, and they still could see this as a professional relationship where they could go back against each other, and it wasn't personal. You really, you have to admire both of them, but I do think it was a sincere relationship. I don't think it was for show. No, it wasn't. They celebrated yeah. New Year's every year. I think what it was it that, um, Nino would kill it and Marty would cook it, I think was the way it went. So Nino had shot the animal and Marty, you gotta love Justice Ginsburg, marrying a guy who did all the cooking. Uh, she knew what she was doing. Um, so I think it was sincere. So I have a question for Judge Sutton and the panel. Um, when you were talking before about some of the reasons why originalism is necessary and you pointed to the structure of the Constitution and the Amendments Clause, it made me think about certain er other areas of law, such as sovereign immunity or preemption or things like that, where, for example, sovereign immunity, um, and I'm a local government attorney, city attorney for Coral Gables. So with cities, uh, if you're gonna waive sovereign immunity, it has to be expressed, can't be implied. So the, you know, the question I would have is, has there been any cases, you know, Supreme Court cases, addressing whether originalism is required as the method for constitutional review as a constitutional matter because of the existence of the amendment clause and the requirement that perhaps there be express recognition of rights. Obviously that's not the way it's happened through American history, but I'm just curious if that's ever been addressed by the court in a formal decision or, or and whether it should be if it hasn't. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I, mean, I think Professor Baker is gonna have a few things to say on this, but I guess my, my way of thinking about it is I don't think anyone in summer of 1787 was thinking, uh, gosh, let's, let's have a little discussion here about what the methodology is gonna be of interpreting this document by the judges. There was no such thing as living constitutionalism. There was, that's a, that's a 21st century, 20th century uh, invention. Uh, of course you construe texts consistent with their meaning. Why write things down if <coughs> the meaning can evolve over time? Why have a written contract if the words are only binding for the split second you sign it, and then the words can evolve over time. So there was nothing to debate. I mean, I think, but one thing I would say about the early court decisions, it's, it's true there are mistakes in terms of original meaning, see Chisholm versus Georgia, but I think I would say they're all, that's what they're deploying. Um, you know, one of the ironies to me is one of the things that really facilitates living constitutionalism is legal realism, the idea that judges are just people and they can't suppress their policy preferences and so they 
are, are inclined, whether it's interpreting statutes or the Constitution, to alter meaning in order to make it consistent with what they'd like to have happen. And to me, that's a tremendous irony that that leads to living constitutionalism. It seems to me, once everyone realizes that problem, and I agree it's a problem, the premise of what the legal realists were saying is correct, but they, it's the exact wrong prescription. The right prescription, once you realize that's true, is to make it very clear that we're being careful about sticking with text, honoring text, and not letting it evolve. I mean, if you think legal realism's a problem, the last thing you should want is living constitutionalism. It makes it a lot worse rather than better. On the question, I, I want to say something about preemption. Uh, the Federalist addresses the areas in which the federal government and the state government have respectively exclusive powers and the areas in which they have overlapping powers. And what the doctrine of preemption does is to take the supremacy clause and expand on it and flip the norm. And so the court set up for itself test as to whether something does or doesn't preempt. And some years ago, I was working with then Senator Fred Thompson, and we had a bill to require that preemption be expressed in congressional statutes and that agencies not be able to do this. Justice Scalia's reaction was, well, that eliminate a lot of cases, make it a lot easier for us. Well, that's what Congress should be doing. Well, it turns out Congress was doing it in many cases, and of course, we know they don't read the bills because they're so long and somebody slips in a preemption clause here or they get the agency to, uh, to slip it in. There are areas where under the Commerce Clause legitimately used, the Supremacy Clause trumps the state laws that are in conflict with it. But to expand beyond that to a general doctrine of preemption has been a fiction created by the court. Justice Scalia, I believe, was a Catholic, and I'm a prosecutor at the appellate level for the federal government. I've noticed an awful lot of Catholics in both prosecution and criminal defense. And my question is not a religious one. I didn't one. hear that last part. I'm sorry. I've noticed an awful lot of Catholics in prosecution and criminal defense, which has made me think about the intersection between religion and law. And this is not a religious question. The question is this. If you were a Catholic, and I think that he took his faith rather seriously as a son who is a, um, a priest, for instance, Catholicism, Christianity, is textualist, but not originalist, at least not Catholicism. Do you think, or do you have any idea, whether he appreciated or had any idea that those two intersected, and whether that informed either his textualism and originalism? And a second question, and you can pick either one or not answer either if you'd like, but often when I'm talking about textualism and originalism versus living constitution, morality or the concept of morality or an extra legal concept comes into play. What do you think that Justice Scalia would say to the question by a non-originalist that if you have originalism and textualism, then the Constitution is an amoral document? Wait, that, la that last statement. It's then the Constitution amoral. is an amoral document. <sighs> How long do we have to answer this? <laughs> I mean, this is a seminar, okay? Um, next year. Next year, okay. You, you want it? I mean, I'm happy. Go for it. Go I'm for happy. it. I mean, 
What? Prompt so many thoughts. The, the, I mean, the, the answer is five minutes. Okay. So <laughs> got, uh, Daniel Woodring back there is the last man standing, so okay. we need to end for Senator Rubio. Okay, so I am a Catholic. I was a prosecutor at the state level, and I am writing against constantly federal criminal law because it's immoral, okay? So that touches on several things there. Textualism, if anything, you would more identify with Protestants because of the greater emphasis on the Bible. And many would say that, in fact, that's the origin. Indeed, if you go back to the Mayflower Compact, that goes back to the Protestant Federalist theologians. So much of our history is really Protestant. And if Catholics have had to do it, we'd still be in Spain or something. We would not have had this form of government. Catholics could not have come up with this, okay? I say that as a Catholic. So. Um, on the morality of, the problem in, in teaching is that many people equate the word morality with religion. That's complete nonsense. I mean, the, the whole founding is about a republic. And a republic required, everybody understood, self-government. And the split between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists was the Anti-Federalists put a much higher a value and had greater optimism about the, quote, morality, meaning civic morality of the people, than did the, did the Federalists. The Federalists were more doubtful, especially after Shea's rebellion, and that they thought that commerce had, would cause people to be more civil to one another because you couldn't count on morality and religion. And certainly this is a problem that Madison addresses in Federalist uh, 10 and previous to that. So, you know, there's a lot in your question. There are a couple of your premises I disagree with, but I'd have to, you know, untangle them. I agree with the premise, by the way, with Protestantism being more textual. I just think that Catholicism yeah. is the most anti-originalist, so sorry. Okay. Thank can you. We, can we have the next question, please? Thank you. Hi. Uh, towards the end of Justice Scalia's li life, was he becoming swayed by the arguments that um, Chevron deference was a threat to the separation of powers? If, if we had had another uh, five years with Justice Scalia, would we have seen a turn in his jurisprudence concerning Chevron? Yes. That's a great, it's a great question. I can tell you the last seminar we had in Colorado at lunch, he said to a table, it wasn't just me, it was a table of 10 people there, he said he was rethinking Chevron based on what his colleagues had already done, and that in that context there had to be what happened. I don't know. Okay. Noise. Um, so I think the I don't know whether he would have modified it, but not just as a pure change. I think he would have modified it in light of changing doctrines that his colleagues were in directions they were going in. You know, one, one, uh, I do think his views about it were changing, and you could argue um, one reason might have been a little bit of a mission accomplished approach. You know, when he comes of age, you have a U.S. Supreme Court and a D.C. Circuit that are very casual about statutory interpretation. And so someone watching that and being frustrated by it, it's quite understandable why they would have thought it's a good idea to give all this policy making and judicial interpretive power to an agency that reports to a president that is elected every four years. So you're thinking, at least it makes these decisions electorally accountable, whereas the justices and judges are not electorally accountable. By the time he ends his tenure, 
consistent with Rachel's point about Justice Kagan, we're all textualists now. Interpretation at the court, I mean, it's still, there are still mistakes, but it's certainly not as casual. It doesn't start with the legislative history. It's much, much more text-driven. So the original problem that led to Chevron, and he was probably its biggest defender for the first 15, 20 years, although he was very tough on step one. I mean, that was often, he took that step one responsibility very seriously because it was a Marbury responsibility. But I, I think one reason his views were changing was that there was a little bit of a mission accomplished, at least on statutory interpretation as opposed to constitutional interpretation. Thank you, and thank you very much for a great panel. Um, question I wanted to ask is, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, Justice Thomas's approach to cases contrasted with Scalia, and you can see that in a few instances. O obviously, they were often very much together, but there were some areas where they differed. Apart from going kind of case by case, uh, could there perhaps be a discussion if there are any themes we could pull out as to the different approaches Justice Thomas and Scalia had on cases and the interpretation? I think it has to do with precedent. I mean, it doesn't mean a whole lot to Justice Thomas. And that's, that answers it all. Well, well, well I, would, I would add, I, I, I think that is the first order of business and really important, but I do think uh, Justice Thomas was quite a bit more sensitive to the vertical structural issues. I mean, I think he really, even in issues where they weren't bound by precedent, I think he was much more sensitive to federalism than Justice Scalia. Um, and so, you know, I mean, it's, it's just fascinating. My understanding is during Rach, the two of them spent a lot of time talking about that case. And, you know, Justice Scalia writes a concurrence that goes further than Justice Stevens' opinion upholding um, the federal legislation there and federal law enforcement. And I think Justice Thomas was pretty apoplectic about that. Um, so federalism, I would say, is not just a stereo decisis driven point. I think there's a difference there. Um, I wonder a little bit on, well, privileges and immunities. I mean, yeah. um, you know, that's a fascinating one. I mean, as a, someone who teaches a lot of law students, I thought that McDonald was a real opportunity to, instead of introducing law students to the idea that tax is just a hurdle to overcome, uh, which is what substantive due process looks like, we could have rationalized this area with privileges and immunities. And I don't know the original meaning, so I'm not sure that was the right answer, but assuming it was, Assuming Justice Thomas's opinion in McDonald's right, sure seemed like a missed opportunity to me um, to line up the text with the interpretation. I'm told that we do have some additional time. Did you have a follow-up, Daniel, or are you good with that? All right. Did, good. Were there any other comments uh, as we push through those last few well, questions? Maybe that, did maybe you want to, Rachel or Professor Morley, did you want to address any of those questions? What, what, one of the, one of the the, the, the part two to one of the earlier questions about whether whether originalism requires you to view the Constitution as an amoral document or just a general ethical approach to the Constitution. I mean, I view the Constitution as a very practical document, right? It was the result of compromises among flawed people. And I mean, obviously, one of the most fundamental compromises that was made was that the, as originally drafted, the Constitution authorized slavery. So, I mean, while the Constitution remains the binding law to which we must be faithful and that originalism is the best way of, of implementing that fidelity, 
I don't necessarily think that requires us to accept it as perfect as originally drafted in all of its forms. As Judge Sutton had mentioned, there is an amendment process specifically so that as time goes on and flaws are discovered or morally concerning parts of it are discovered, it can be amended. But many parts of it simply reflect practical compromises between large and small states, northern and southern states, different interests in society at the time. And certainly as the electorate has grown, as the American political community has become more inclusive, I think that issues that weren't even on the minds of the framers at all are now becoming part of our political discourse. And it certainly isn't beyond the realm of possibility that, that over time we would see the Constitution amended in order to reflect these evolving understandings, but through the actual amendment process and not just a panel of judges unilaterally deciding to change the Constitution to reflect their own views. Well, this wouldn't be a good panel if there wasn't some disagreement. So I'm going to disagree here in part. And I, I really push back against this thing that, that somehow the Constitution is just this bundle of compromises. It is taught that way, and it is, it is not a good way to teach it, I'm sorry. Um, the Federalist is there not just to advocate for the Constitution, it's there to explain it. And yes, among reasoned persons debating in secret and, and deliberating, Oftentimes, what comes out is better than what either side thought going in. There is a design to the Constitution. It is, as explained in the Federalist, all about giving adequate power to the federal government, but limiting it. Not the amount of power, but the numbers of power and how the powers are allocated and that the states and the federal government will check each other. It is a very moral Constitution as written because Unlike all the past theorists from Plato forward who talked about ideal constitutions, the, our founders gave us one. And it worked because it was like a tailored suit. They understood human nature and they knew and said this was not a perfect constitution. It was the best that they could get under the circumstances. And Hamilton and, and Governor Morris and others were very anti-slavery. And Governor Morris is the last draft on the Constitution. And he keeps the word slavery out of there. Northwest Ordinance is passed, stopping slavery in the new territories. Later, that's undone. But they knew it wasn't perfect. But the option was the southern states were going to bolt and join Spain. That was the practical judgment. Do you take this? which will do a just, give a just solution and that over time the problem of slavery will be worked out. There are those who in hindsight say they shouldn't have done that. Well, the other option was slavery for the southern states as part of the Spanish Empire. If that's the choice, I don't think there's much of a choice. You know, we lose, I think eight of the, if you, if you look at the amendments from 11, through 27, I think um, eight of them overrule U.S. Supreme Court decisions, which seems like the right thing to do, and including the morality debate. Of course, one is overruling Dred Scott, surely a mistaken decision. Um, and one unfortunate reality is that that's not the way we think about it anymore. Surely the U.S. Supreme Court has made more than eight mistakes <laughs> in the last 227 years. So that is not the approach we're taking. And, and one sad irony, in my view, 
happened in the 1970s. I wasn't old enough to appreciate it at the time, but the effort to adopt the ERA um, you know, came up one or two states short. And looking back on it, you know, I had no opinion at the time. I was too young to care. But looking back on it, I think it's quite unfortunate that it didn't pass. Because um, what, what did happen was the ERA effectively became law with U United States versus Virginia, the, the BMI decision I referenced earlier. There's nothing the ERA would have done that that decision does not now do. And I think the lesson learned was why in the world would you go through the hassles of getting three quarters of the states to do something when all you need is a fifth justice? Um, and that's, that's a really dangerous lesson. Um, so I, that's unfortunate. We are now in four corners offense, uh, <laughs> I'm told. So if uh, we have other questions, uh, folks who'd like to ask a question, please step up to the mic. So I'll ask a question. So Judge Sutton, what's your solution to the problem of uh, so difficult to pass a constitutional amendment because you might say that the ERA demonstrates that even when there's a broad social consensus, it's very hard to do that. Well, um, I, I uh, used to always wish I had the guts to do this when I was an advocate. Uh, so now I'll try it down. I'll try to I'll try to make the question harder than even you made it. I I, I looked into this issue because um, I, I really do think this is the one defect in the Constitution. It's, it's the one thing I would change if I could change anything, and I. If, if you put 2%, just 2% of the American population in the right rural small states, 2% of the American population can stop a constitutional amendment. So it's a really, really serious problem. And I guess my answer to it is to rely on the scholarship of um, some real a ACS. There's this book by Pam Carlin, Goodwin Liu. I can't remember the third member of the third author. But the, the gist of the book was that the U.S. Supreme Court follows majority will anyway. It's very rare that they're that far ahead. In fact, they're usually behind. And so if that's already a dynamic in place, I guess I don't understand why one wouldn't use the very political movements that help one change the meaning of the Constitution to get three quarters of the states. The downside, of course, is it's going to take a little longer because it's three quarters of the states as opposed to getting 51% or 55% or whatever it might be. But that's democracy. And you know, if you've got a good idea, why in the world wouldn't you use it? I mean, let's just, let's just say they tr the ERA had not, it, well, it didn't pass. Let's say US versus Virginia had not happened. I don't think it'd be that hard to pass it today. And so if you have the courage of your convictions, use them, use them, and it's often going to help you in the long run. I'd like to ask a, ask a question if we still have, sure. if we still have time. So J John Hart Eli, in his, in his book, Democracy and Distrust, lays out his own approach to constitutional interpretation. But he starts out by talking about original textualism and originalism, and his main critique is that that while that might work for many provisions of the Constitution, he argued once you get to phrases like due process of law, equal protection, 
and the and the phrases that are perhaps vaguer or broader or that in more closely relate to certain principles that in his view textualism and originalism either become indeterminate that there's that there's conflicting views among the framers and not necessarily any way to choose among them or the framers didn't address the issue at all and no determinant way of using your original sources to come to a conclusion so I, I, be I mean that goes back to the separation of powers point to me I mean another way of getting at this is Originalism has this downside, people say, because it's so difficult to read 18th century legal opinions and really get into the mind of the 18th century judge, legislator, and to really figure out what these indeterminate or broadly phrased terms mean. I say you do the inquiry, and if the history's not dispositive, democracy is so obviously the answer. I just, I mean, this, I think we're, it's Stockholm Syndrome to say, oh my God, we, we can't have five justices telling us what to do with these important issues? I, I just, I don't get it. I mean, it, it, it seems so obvious to me that if you can't find out, default goes to a democracy. And if I had to maybe have one slight asterisk on that, if you, you know, if you think unreasonable searches and seizures are hard, how about separation of powers? in dealing with all these modern phenomenons and keeping the branches separate. That might be my one exception. There it seems to me that that's where the judges really earn their pay, making sure the democracy is really functioning in the way it was supposed to function. And that, that might be the one area where there's probably a little more of a warrant for the judge preserving things. But otherwise, what's so bad about de democracy as the default? Um, I think Senator Rubio is running a few minutes late. That's the reason we're delaying things a little bit. Um, well, we could what about reliance on uh, foreign judgments and uh, in the country? Do you see that uh, increasing or decreasing? Well, I, I gave a talk on this at the University of Hawaii with John Yu, and Justice Ginsburg was sitting right in front of me. And she had previously, she gave a talk that she had previously published in Idaho. And this was right before the decisions relating to Guantanamo. And in that, it was clear that for her viewpoint to prevail, because she said that eventually her viewpoint would prevail, that certain things had to happen. They had to either overrule or got uh, certain cases. So it kind of reached a high point, but the attack has been so strong that I think that they've been more cautious. And of course, we're no longer, I mean, we've seen this huge backlash against globalization now. So I don't think it's a good time to make that kind of an argument, even to those who are maybe more disposed towards it. Join me in thanking the panelist members for an excellent discussion.